I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need, and get 10% off with the code all caps FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10, to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, anti-heroes journeyers? Doc Askins here, coming at you with another one of the Q5 podcasts that I know you love so much, where I ask my five favorite questions that I use in ketamine-assisted therapy preparatory sessions ahead of medicine sessions with people. We're not currently being ketamine-assisted in this conversation that I'm having with my friend G.V. Freeman. We're completely straight sober for this conversation, and that's the way we like it. I'm excited to host him on this podcast. G.V. Freeman is a transformational guide who helps humans unstuck themselves. Using a fully integrated approach to body, mind, and spirit, he and his clients work together to solve modern-day problems with centuries-old tools. G.V.'s life resembles a Venn diagram of entrepreneurship, mental health, and psychedelics. After 20 years as a serial entrepreneur, entrepreneur, he began following his true dharma to help people create the satisfaction, success, and inspiration they deeply craved. Using modern-day coaching, psychology, and somatic experiencing tools within millennia-old wisdom traditions such as Advaita Vedanta, Buddhism, yoga, and shamanism, GV offers a truly unique approach and foundation for his clients to heal, grow, and thrive. GV, it's a pleasure to host you on the podcast, my friend. <laughs> Thank you, Doc. And that is a mouthful. Like, I should probably shorten that. I should probably just lop off the second paragraph. That is, there's a there's a just give her a trim. That's the 25 years of marketing that like still wants to ooze out. Like we have to write this really professional bio. So for all your listeners, I apologize for all the BS. It was uh, you know, it wasn't too hard to read. I, I did I did my best with it. <laughs> But uh, let's get things rocking and rolling with uh, question number one. What's your story? Yeah, story. Uh, I grew up in a little town called Sargent, Nebraska. When I was growing up, 700 people lived there. Now it's probably close to 400. And I am still like I, I have some people in our community that say you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Um, and I think that that's absolutely true. So I just wrote a post on LinkedIn today that said, you know, some, my spirituality includes colloquialisms, especially Midwestern colloquialisms. It includes some sometimes raw humor. It includes some really just unabashed conversation about what spirituality is and isn't. But from there, grew up in a little bit larger town in Nebraska where I got outed as a gay kid in, uh, at 13. And in the middle of the, in the mid nineties, getting out as a gay kid was not a very comfortable thing. 
So my sophomore year was a really challenging year for me. So I became a foreign exchange student and I moved to Belgium for 11 months when I was 15 years old. So my, my parents always sort of thought of me as a precocious child to begin with, and that just solidified it. And it also introduced me to some drugs and alcohol, which I then developed a pretty healthy relationship with over the next 15 years. After a couple, two and a half years working as a DJ for Carnival Cruise Lines, I came back. I had spent some time in college. I came back, tried to go to school again. That didn't work. Finally got sober in 2007. Good for you. And God willing, in a couple of months, it'll be 16 years sober from alcohol. That's excellent. And it wasn't until, I mean, in 2012, I found yoga and therapy. 2013, I did my yoga teacher training. I met a shamanic practitioner there who I did some work with, and then she ended up pointing me in the direction of Peru. So in 2015, I I sat in the jungles of Peru with Corindero, sitting with ayahuasca. And that, it really shifted a whole bunch of things. I had, for for, uh, almost 15 years now, I've been living a life of corporate on one hand and spirituality on the other hand. And COVID wrecked my last tech startup. And the universe sort of like, you know, Brene Brown says, sometimes the universe just like comes down and gently puts its hands on your shoulders and whispers to you in your ear, it's time to stop fucking around. (laughs) Thanks, universe. And and yeah, like the universe had been tapping me on the shoulder for like a, a while. And then it like flicked my ear for a while. And this time it said, okay, like you you haven't been listening. So we're going to make this happen. And the last two years have been some of the most amazing and also some of the most challenging years of my life. We started a entheogenic church. I, I moved to full-time coaching and medicine work. I take people to Peru uh, and work with my teachers doing medicine work. And my world is about helping people wake up today. So it's been a really fascinating journey. Yeah, that's really intense. That's uh, a compact run through. I'd like to try to unpack a few of those things along the way, if that's okay. Yeah, tell me more about, uh, you know, spending time in Peru. I landed there the first time in 2015, and that was sort of meant to happen. I had just finished working with a woman who was in the Four Winds tradition, and we had just went through the Moon Aiki. And from there, we couldn't get to where I really wanted to go. Like there was still something blocking me, and we didn't know what to do and how to get there. So she introduced me to a friend of hers who spent half her time in Peru and half her time in the US. And this woman said, Well, it just so happens that I'm taking people into the jungle to sit with Aya in about four weeks. You want to come join us? <laughs> and money at that point in time, it just, the money happened to work out and I had some vacation time and like everything was just meant to be. So I had no idea who I was going to meet. I had no idea what I was going to experience. I hadn't done a psychedelic in seven years since I got sober. I had been sober from all mind altering substances. And I had a, a conversation with my sponsor and he said, okay, well, if that's what you want to do, if that's what you think is going to be healing for you, go ahead. Which is probably so pretty I, rare, right? That's, yeah, uh, especially this is 2015. Yeah. All the research did not exist right. uh, today that, that we have today that, you know, and I, and I work with a lot of people in 12-step recovery programs now, but it did not exist back then. And he just said, okay, well, like, you know what you're doing. 
so he trusted me uh, to go down and do that. And that was the first time in Peru. Second time was a little bit later. I ended up in Peru in 2021, which is when I, I actually met my teachers now. So master medicine carrier uh, that I work with very intimately today. And then I'm taking people to Peru in November. So we're going to actually go down and spend a couple of weeks in the mountains, Cusco, the Tinahani Canyon, Apuasangate. We'll spend two weeks there doing Wachuma. And then we'll actually, some people will come leave. Some people will come in and we'll actually go to the jungle. We'll fly to Puerto Maldonado and spend a week in the jungle doing ayahuasca. So it's, if anybody else wants to join, you're uh, more than welcome. It's a pretty remarkable place. That's some intense stuff. Yeah. Thanks for unpacking that a little bit more for me. I appreciate it. Tell me more about being a DJ on Carnival Cruise Lines then. (laughs) I was wondering if that was the question that you were going to ask about my DJ career. I started DJing when I was a senior in high school. I worked for a freshman year in college. I actually went to work for this franchise and I have played the chicken dance at least 500 times I had done when I, before I left there, I was a DJ for about 15 years before I left complete music. I had, I had done 500 wedding dances and I, I got to a point where, and most of them were in central Nebraska. So I got to a point where I could play about five songs at the beginning of a dance and I could tell what people were going to listen to and if they were going to dance or not dance. And I got to be honest, that work doing 500 dances and reading a crowd and knowing how music affects people has it set the foundation for the way that I guide sacred medicine ceremonies. So I am not a musician. I don't play all the musicians and sing all the ikaros that that a traditional corandero might perform. I use secular music and and I move people through the experience using music more so than anything else. My two and a half years on the cruise ships were the best place for, for the best place to, to train and for an alcoholic to hide out. Like it was people would, as a DJ, people bring you booze to, to uh, get how their kind song of you. Played. Thank you. So I stay at the yeah, table. Like yeah. I, absolutely. I would take another double shot of Southern comfort and a Bacardi diet. Like that is perfect for me <laughs> yeah, right now. Yeah. And I had a lot of fun. And I will tell you that it is the perfect place to burn yourself out. Like when you're drinking five to seven nights a week for almost two and a half years, it was a perfect place for me to learn how to drink. And it was the peak of the fun of my drinking career. Things started to sort of go downhill from there. Yeah. Tell me about your sobriety journey just a little, if you're willing. Sure. Never thought that I was an alcoholic. To this day, if I'm being totally honest, to this day, I still question whether I'm really a true alcoholic. I'm, I am absolutely a sugar addict. So I'm absolutely an <laughs> addict. Let's just put it that way. I am an addict. I have all of the addict thinking. Okay. I have spent time in in 12, uh, in AA. I've spent time in O-Readers Anonymous. I've spent time in Al-Anon. Like, I could qualify for all sorts of addiction programs. but but you're not sure about drinking. Alcohol. Well, stopping drinking was like drinking was the way that I was able to mask a lot of the pain that I had experienced in high school and from childhood. So it made the pain go away long enough for me to come out and be myself. And 
I'll tell you when I stopped drinking, like my life started to improve significantly. So many things improved in my life the minute that I quit drinking. And on the other hand, there were parts of me that got stifled. Like I, I am only now as a 45 year old with almost 16 years sober, I'm only now starting to play again. I'm only now starting to learn how to be sort of like frivolous and carefree. And it is, it's a whole new experience learning how to cultivate that part of me that happened, like was there when I was six, eight, 10 years old, the, the playful childlike qualities that I see in some of my teachers and spiritual teachers. So sobriety has been beautiful and it's been a really challenging web to untangle now as I have integrated spirituality and psychedelics. What are you playing? What, what, tell me more about this play. You said you're just starting well, that's, at 45. It's a great fucking question. Goof around. Like, yeah. I'm trying to figure it out myself. Yeah, yeah. Like there is a, a strong desire to like find wa- more water to play in. Like oh, I, cool. as a, as a kid, I was at the swimming pool. Like, I, again, I grew up in a little town. So every day of, of the summer that the pool was open, I was there from 12 to nine. <laughs> if I wasn't playing baseball, nice. Um, I was at the swimming pool. Pickleball has started to become yeah, a play thing. That's a fun game. And uh, guitar is something. So guitar is a really tricky one because there's a, for me, there's a really fine line between competition or performance and play. Okay. Yeah. So you play hard. The minute that I am thinking about performance or competition or winning play gets squeezed out of that. So I'm trying to figure it all out right now. So hence the entrepreneurial piece of the Venn diagram as well then, right? A little competitive, a little performance. Perfectionism, uh, recovering perfectionist, absolutely. And also in credit, like I love being, creativity for me doesn't come out in artistic ways. It comes out in like problem solving ways. So I'm a great systems thinker. I'm actually one of the things that we'll talk about a little later in the creating phase is I love to create projects. I love to birth a project. I hate raising said project. So I've got one tech company that's out there and I am, we're actively finding people to help raise this child. And I'm about ready to start doing it with a second one called psychedelic reviews. Oh boy. Let's get rocking and rolling through some of these other questions then. I really appreciate you sharing those different chapters of your story, but I want to, you know, get to the creating question. We got to hurry up here or something, you know? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. What, I mean, what a phenomenal story you have and that you're willing to, you know, come on here and put that out there. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. What I like to ask about people's stories for is to just hear about their past and where they're coming from. And then the next question I'll ask is about what's your intentions? Where are you headed? My... So I think of things, again, 25 years in corporate, I think of things a lot of ways in the corporate world still. And I find ways where the corporate world, I think, gets it right. They have standardized some frameworks. So I think a lot in mission, vision, values, and and even mantra. So today, my mantra is to help others wake up. Okay. And it's not something that everybody wants to do or is ready for. You know, I would say a mission statement for me, the intention is I help humans who already have enough learn to feel like they are enough. Okay. I like that. And we do that by creating a life they love to live. 
Yeah, that's really good. You're good at condensing some of this stuff down. I appreciate that. That's what I appreciate about you. Help me understand this waking up thing, though. Like everybody's talking about waking up, and, you know, I'm awake right now, but it seems like you're talking about something other than that. Imagine yourself as a Tootsie Pop. I like this. Yeah. How many <laughs> licks does it analogy. take to the Tootsie Roll Center of Doc? That is absolutely correct. <laughs> a Tootsie so- Doc. <laughs> When you were first born, let's let's leave epigenetics out of this equation for just a moment. So when you were born, you were this like clean and pure Tootsie Roll center. And it's like, what? It's what we always do. Like we want to get rid of the, the lollipop, the hard candy on the outside to get to the inside. You were that inside. And then the world happened to you. Like you grew up. Nobody makes it through puberty alive. We have lots of challenging experiences with parents and with girlfriends and boyfriends and and life in general. And for me, addiction was a part of that and coming out was a part of that. And the world then layers on all of these hard candy shells around us. That Tootsie Roll Center is still there. There is a part of you deep inside. In yoga, we call it the hridayam, the heart cave. It's the self, self with a capital S. It's the one part of our essence that doesn't actually change. Everything that we can experience in life is impermanent. If I can see, smell, touch, taste, feel, hear all of our senses or think about it, it is impermanent. It will go away. So waking up for me is about exposing, remembering who that Tootsie Roll Center really is. And to do that, we just have to sort of like lick away the layers (laughs) of this Tootsie Pop. And how you lick away those layers is very like people do it in all sorts of ways. We do meditation is a way and yoga is a way and psychedelics are a way and coaching is a way and therapy is a way. There's all of those are tools. And I am in favor of almost all of them, as long as they're not hurting you or someone else. And all it is, is just a remembering. Okay. Yeah. Now I have so many more questions. <laughs> what? Uh, I'm like, I'm like the owl in the old Tootsie Roll Pop commercial, like one, two, three, Ooh. crunch. Yeah. Like we'll just, <laughs> we'll just, we'll just chew right through this bad boy and we'll get right to the center. And that's you- like that crunch. That's ayahuasca. That's ibogaine. (laughs) There are, there are slow, soft, gentle ways to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. And then there are like fat, fast and challenging and like hard ways. It's just a real sharp beak going straight through all of those things. Okay. That's exactly right. I have no personal experience with either of those medicines to base any discussions upon. So I defer entirely to your wisdom in that regard. But do you, do you think it's possible to just stay a Tootsie Roll Pop? Like, has anybody ever just not had candy layers put on them? Ooh, not. I've never met anyone. And I would say not in our culture. Our culture is built around a lot of frameworks around scarcity and achieving and perfection and our rites of passage automatically add hard candy shells. Like I said, like I don't know, I don't know a single person who made it through puberty alive. 
I don't know a single person who just had such a wonderful childhood that they don't have some way to look back in their 30s and say like, oh, God, I really wish my mom or dad would have treated me better in some way. I think it's pretty hard. Like I, Ramana Maharshi, great saint in India. He, I think he became enlightened at like 14. He was just, he was just sitting there. I was just at his ashram last December and he was just sitting in this room and he became enlightened. And I think that a lot of that has to do with our soul age and to not to go too deeply into this, but I would just say that if, if you believe in the idea of reincarnation, when we our first incarnation, we start at the clock at midnight and from midnight until six, we are living in the dark and we really don't know what waking up is all about. And then from 601 on millions of incarnations later, we are slowly, slowly, slowly waking up. And maybe as you get closer and closer to midnight, again, you might be able to go through an incarnation without building up any hard candy shell. Wow. Whoa. What happens at noon? What do I get for lunch? <laughs> at, at six o'clock is when we, we start waking up again <laughs> in the beginning. You don't even know like the yeah, first, yeah. who knows the first few million lives you're, uh, you're probably like a gnat and a fly. <laughs> and, okay. What if we like, I, I what if know. you flipped all of that on his head? What if those were like the most enlightened things were the gnats or the fleas or something like that? Does anybody see it that way? Well, there is, there's a little bit of truth to that because the really the part of our suffering that we experience in this human existence comes from the idea of separation. I forget that I am God. My ego, my mind tells me that I am separate from God. And it is that separation that causes a suffering. So a gnat doesn't even know that he or she or it is its suffering. It really doesn't have any conscious thought. So in some ways, yeah, the, a gnat is probably more enlightened than we are. One tree, one tree doesn't look like if, if, if you got this like beautiful oak tree in the forest, that beautiful oak tree doesn't look at the tree right next to it, that crooked oak tree and say, "Ugh, like you're crooked. I don't want to grow by you. That doesn't happen. But we as humans, we look for differences within each other, not similarities. So as humans, we find the crooked tree and say, yeah, I don't want to hang out with you. So trees are probably more enlightened than we are too. Hmm. Strategic navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. Well, I appreciate you dropping all that knowledge on me. That's, you know, a, a lot of things that I'm unfamiliar with. And I'll look forward to whenever I get a chance to be a gnat someday. <laughs> me too. <laughs> but let's roll on to question number three. Like you've set some intentions and you've, you know, dropped a lot of wisdom already. What, what are you grateful for? Today. Today, I'm grateful for the beautiful weather that we have outside. I could go take a walk. I'm grateful for this amazing maple tree that is going to start changing colors in a moment. I have like hummingbirds and bumblebees and dragonflies hang outside this window. I get to see that. I'm super grateful for that. I'm grateful for getting a chance to talk to you and meeting you. Grateful for 
I talked to my teacher in Peru today and my community and dear friends. I'm grateful. Like I can be grateful for so many things. But when I read this question, the first thing that I thought about was it's not really about what I'm grateful for. It's what I want to share with people is my experience with lack of gratitude because in 15, 16 years of program work and everybody telling me that I just need to be grateful, I will tell you that it's only been in the last year to year and a half where I have actually felt gratitude. Okay. And it is, it's a really challenging experience for people to just say, oh, well, just be grateful for what you have. And what I want to do is tell them to piss off. <laughs> because it doesn't always feel that way. Yeah, sure. And there are there are a lot of days when I wake up and I'm in my shit when I don't feel grateful. And it's just part of the process. There's a story about these wise men who get called in to work for the king. The king's really unhappy and he's just so angry every day. And he asks his three wise men, come up with a solution to make me happy. So, and if they, and if you can't make me happy, then I'm going to cut off your heads. So the wise men are like freaked out. They got, they got a night to figure out how to make the king happy. And they come in the next morning and they hand a king a ring. And the king looks at the ring and is like, I already have rings. I already have gold. I have all the jewels that I want. This doesn't make me happy at all. And the, and one of the wise men says, well, look at the inscription on the inside. And on the inside, it says, this too shall pass. And that immediately makes the king happy. He's like, ah, my, the, the anger that I feel right now, this too shall pass. I will be happy at one point in time. And the, the three wise men get the hell out of there because what they fail to tell the king is when you're happy, the same saying holds true. This too shall pass. When you're happy, you will also become sad again. You will also become angry again. So it is the cycle. And we have to realize that the cycle exists. And when I'm in the middle of the shit, the faster I can realize that I'm in the middle of the shit and this too shall pass, the faster I get out of it, the faster I can find gratitude again. That's beautiful. I like that story a lot. That's a, I'm grateful for your story about gratefulness. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. So with all that gratefulness, with your story, with all your intentions, we get to that question you were anticipating. What? What are you creating? Today, I am really grateful and about the community that we are creating. So I operate in St. Louis and we've been building a community since 2016 and that continues to grow. I built a spiritual community center on my property called the Conscious Shala and super grateful for that and the people that show up. I am in the process right now of literally creating a, an experience down to Peru with my teachers. And then the, the newest thing, which is going to be a big, like, who knows what's going to happen. But we, after working with a, or after dealing with a bad actor in the psychedelic space in our community and not figuring out a way to handle this individual, there was no easy way to deal with bad actors. I said, well, how do we create a system that encourages the good actors that spotlights and helps the good actors be seen. And how do we wait? How, how can we build a system that teaches psychedelic seekers, people that are out there looking for experiences? How can we build a system that says, Hey, go to this place and only work with people 
on this list. So it, I'm creating a product called Psychedelic Reviews. It's sort of the Angie's list of psychedelics. Oh, okay. And right now we're going to launch probably within the next month, to month and a half. We will launch and we're just focused on facilitators at the moment. But once we get the bugs worked out, we'll move to churches and we'll move to retreat centers and, and ketamine clinics and all the things that are going to be coming out. I mean, Oregon has psilocybin clinics right now that are popping up. So what I'm trying to do is build a home for people to leave, to, to speak to their capabilities and experience, for seekers to leave reviews about their experiences to not have a whole bunch of trolls leaving crappy reviews and to also build in some privacy for both the seeker and the facilitator to only share information with the individuals that they want to share it with. It's uh, such a brilliant idea and so necessary. Now, I'm a clinician and I'm a member of the Department of Defense. I'm still in the National Guard. I don't have any experience whatsoever with underground world that I've heard so much about. And, you know, I hear bits and pieces here and there along the way. And I wonder if you have any, you know, advice, you know, lived experience from dealing with bad actors. What, what would you have to say to folks? The majority of the bad actors that I bump up against are not accountable to anyone. So they're not accountable to a community. They're not accountable to a lineage. They're not accountable to a program of any kind. So one of the things that I tell people, if you're looking for someone is to ask about an individual's training and who they're accountable to. We can't stop bad actors. I, I don't know of a way until we create some national database of underground psychedelic guides, which you can leave yourself out of. I don't think that there's any way to do this. So rather than focusing on the bad ones, I wanted to focus on the good ones. And hopefully a year from now, we'll be able to talk again. And there will be a significant number of people that are seeking psychedelic guides who the, one of the first questions that they ask is, hey, can you send me your psychedelic reviews profile? And from there, people will be able to see whether or not they're, they have good positive reviews. Yep, just rate my professor. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, and in all total fairness, like it might not work. I have realized in my 15, <laughs> yeah, yeah. last 15 years of entrepreneurship. You might get a, that, might get a Bodie McBoat face out of the deal or something like that, right? Or we just crowdsourced this and the crowd was not the crowd we wanted. That's exactly right. And you know what? The This is all being, I swear to you, this is all going to come from idea to launch within three months. Like it, there's a part of this that feels divinely inspired, whether or not everybody else feels it's divinely inspired is another story, but it will be my attempt to make this space safer and reduce harm through the community. Oh yeah. I, I absolutely love that. Any efforts at harm reduction in this sort of in-between time period where there's people who are pursuing healing that's not available everywhere, but that, you know, you can't be out in the daylight with in a clinical setting. Like there's that, you know, in between space and in between time that we're living in that you're working to make the, the people safe, be a guardian, be a protector there. And I'm all for that. That's beautiful. One of my teachers, I, I was really angry at this individual. I thought it was anger. I had been pretty angry because they had harmed someone in our community. And 
for two or three weeks, I wrestled with this idea. Do I out them? Like, how do we, how do we deal with this? And when I went to my teacher, I was, I told her I was really angry and she's like, well, tell me about your anger. So I shared with her and shared with her. And she said, it's not really anger. It's actually wrath. And, and I said, well, that sounds worse. (laughs) I I don't know if you went to church when you were younger or anything, but like they have those spiritual gifts tests or whatever, like joy and peace and like giving and hospitality. I took one and it came out wrath and I've been looking for a ministry ever since. And I just can't find one anywhere. So I joined the (laughs) army. So what I didn't realize is that wrath comes from a place of love. Like God smites you with divine wrath because you are going against his wishes. You're going against his will. And Lord knows I'm not trying to call myself God, but there is a bit of a mama bear energy that was coming up. So there's some mama bear energy that is creating the psychedelic reviews project. And it's really just trying to help people be safer because it takes, you know, there's some studies that just came out recently that, I think John Hopkins or Imperial College of London, I don't know who published the study, but out of 2,000 individuals that they had looked at that had done psychedelics on their own, 11% of them had some persisting negative effects anywhere from one to three months after the experience, hmm. which is way higher than I expected. Yeah. 11%. Yeah, I haven't seen is, numbers like that so far, but I haven't read that study. It is higher than what I expected. So I would love for individuals to be able to find a good qualified guide that meets them in where they're at in their price range and is safe. You know, you mentioned shamanism earlier with your experiences in Peru and then the need for a lineage whenever you're talking to somebody who's going to be, you know, a, a trip seater or lead, a leader or guide or something along those lines. I, I know almost nothing about that except from, you know, reading books. But it seems to me in a lot of traditions, the shaman is chosen in some, you know, sometimes ritualistic way or by tribal leadership to play that role. Like it's a, it's a calling of some sort to be in that role and to like claim a calling that doesn't come from a people doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And then it's also seems like it's not like the most desirable role in the tribe either. Like it usually involves poverty and being kind of like a sacred fool and sort of a jackass all the time running around and, and like, none of the people who are trying to pass themselves off as autonomous shamans, like they all charge a lot of money. So I hear, or, you know, it's a, it's like a get rich quick scheme, but without any ties to any of what I've read shamanism is like, I don't know. Do you have thoughts about any of that? Yeah. So I think what you're really talking about, we might call neo shamanism. A lot of people that, especially in this country or just the West in general, calling themselves shamans. I've, I don't personally believe that shamans exist outside of like the birth country. So I think you grow up in that world. You grow up in a place where shamanism exists. And as a result of that, your community asks you to, to play that role. I am not a shaman. Even the practitioner that I started my journey with in 2013 
they would not call themselves a shaman. They would call themselves a shamanic practitioner. So there are a lot of practices that shamans use that anyone can employ. You don't have to even call yourself a shamanic practitioner to use drumming to do your own journey work. One of my teachers actually said something very beautiful to me. He said, if you want to be a psychedelic guide, you shouldn't be one. <laughs> the desire means that you are coming from a place of ego. The people that should be doing the most guiding are the ones who are called to do it. And they are called by their community. They are called by their teachers. So when you, when you go sit in a circle and Cordendero says something to you or begins teaching you or invites you to sit in a different kind of way or in a different kind of circle, those are the moments when you're being called into a tradition or called into a practice. For me, I had been organizing an ayahuasca circle for a few years and community members came to me and said, hey, will you trip sit for me? So I didn't realize it until many years later that it really was the community that was asking me to show up and do this kind of work. I didn't ask gotcha. you. I never intended. God yeah. knows I never intended to do this kind of work. Sure. I thought I'd be the CEO or CMO of a, <laughs> a Fortune 500 tech company by now. Okay. Uh, the universe, again, had other, huh. other things to say. I wonder about, you know just the cosmopolitan nature of the world at this point with people, you know, jet setting all over the planet, having houses and homes everywhere, you know, among the folks that are affluent enough. And then just the history of immigration that's taken place all over the planet, how that affects some of the ways in which, uh, you know, our ties back to ancient times and to uh, the rituals and traditions associated with some of these medicines. And then people like, you know, you and I, who are far from native North Americans, as far as I could guess, 23andMe has some opinions about some of what might be the case there or whatever, right? But I just wonder what the future holds in that regard, because we're all so multicultural and diverse and, and traveled so many different places at this point. Like, does it, is it all headed towards, you know, oneness? Is it, we got to stay separated? Is it something altogether different? I'm just super curious to see how any of that plays out. Yeah, was it Martin Luther King that says that like something like the arc of truth bends towards justice? I would, my feeling is that like the arc of humanity is bending towards oneness we came from the one, we returned to the one. Advaita Vedanta is actually is non-dual philosophy. So Advaita is non-dual. And that tradition believes that we're all one energy. The substratum of everything is called the Brahman. And that energy is what quantum physics is teaching us today. The only reason why, again, we feel like we're separate is because of our minds. And we can, when we can get the mind out of the way, separation dissolves. And that's one of the beautiful things about psychedelics. So it's depending on how we talk about it, right? If we're going to use the clock analogy from reincarnation, though, it might be bending towards 12-ness, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that is absolutely right. Yeah. But we, the math. We are always, always bending towards back 12 to the math. <laughs> towards 12-ness or here's oneness. What, 
the Buddha, when we talk about the clock and when we think about how long a day is in theory, if we talk about 12 to 12, how long is a day? The Buddha said, if you imagine a mountain one mile long by one mile wide by one mile tall, big mountain, big old cube, every, every 100 years, an eagle flies over the mountain with a silk scarf in its beak. The number of lives that we live from 12 to 12 is equal to the number of time or to the length of time that that silk scarf has to wear down the mountain. Has to wear down the mountain? Yeah. So every 100 years, an eagle flies over the mountain with a silk (laughs) scarf in its beak. And we have to be reincarnated as many times as it takes for that scarf to wear down the mountain. So that's a lot of times we're around here a long time. So the arc of truth that is bending towards oneness (laughs) is a long arc. It's quite, it's parabolic, right? It just never quite gets there. It's always, it's an what is that word like asymptotic. It's an asymptotic asymptotic. curve. Yeah. Yeah. Approaching one by half forever without ever getting there. Yeah. 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 Yes. That's sort of the, that's the situation that we're in today. And, you know, in in yoga, I can live with that. I can live with that. In yoga, we call it, we're in the Kali Yuga today. And the Kali Yuga is the, the heaviest of energies. It's the darkest of energies. And the next yuga that we move into will be significantly different and lighter. I probably like, especially in this incarnation, I will definitely not be here. <laughs> you sound so sure. How do you know that? <laughs> uh, the way that my process is working right now, I question whether or not I'll, uh, I'll make it into the next couple of decades. So I hope you hang in there till the end happens. of the podcast with me, at least, you know, <laughs> I'll stick around that long. I All promise. Right. Well, I appreciate that, man. That's awesome. This has been a really great conversation. I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up with question number five here though. GV, who are you really? I am a human just showing up, doing the best that I can and doing my work, holding space for other people to do their work and making mistakes every day. And from one day to the next, I have no idea what I am going to do or what I'm supposed to do, but the universe has magically, now that I have started listening, the universe has magically just started telling me like, this is what you're going to do today. So I'm just doing the best I can. Doing the best you can with what you got. That's about all you can do, right? Yeah, that is absolutely. It is one of the core principles that I work with all of my clients is to remind them that we're all just doing the best we can with what we've got. And when you believe that, when you can really, really believe that in your heart of hearts, there's no way that judgment can exist. And when you remove judgment from your mental model, like in fairness, I I judge all the time. Like I'm a beautiful judging machine. So I, I allow myself to have the judgment. And then I was like, oh, yep, there's judgment. Now I get to investigate. Now I get to be curious. Because if I remind myself that everybody's doing the best they can with what they've got, judge, there is nothing to judge. Yeah, that's some great insight for sure. You have any final thoughts for us? The one thing that I would remind everybody is you're perfect and you're right on time. And the path is wiser than the traveler. I couldn't possibly add anything to that. Thank you for coming on the podcast today, my friend. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Doc out. <laughs>